Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we discover the history all around us. This week, we have a special episode of Notice History as we kick off our History at Work series, where we sit down with young professionals working in the heritage, education, and culture industries to see how a love of history has shaped their paths and what it means to them. Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. As always, we're your hosts, Robin Mullins and Keely McCabot. And today we have an extra special host with us. We're going to be doing an interview for our History at Work series. And we have with us today the Director of Programming from Heritage Toronto, Caitlin Wainwright. Welcome, Caitlin. Thanks so much. Thanks for being here. So, Caitlin, maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm a historian and more specifically a public historian is my uh, nine to five or I guess eight to four now. Um, I'm also a relatively new mom of a eight month old. So currently balancing that relationship between uh, work life balance, which is really not a thing. There's no such thing as work life balance when you're a parent. <laughs> um, and I've been living in Toronto and practicing as a public historian here for seven years. Uh, with Heritage Toronto the whole time, beginning um, in the plaques program, managing and overseeing that program. And then I've been the director of programming for the last uh, four years now. That's awesome. And was it, am I correct in my memory? Because we had done our public history programs together. You were the year ahead of me. Um, I think that you worked at Health Canada before Heritage Toronto. Yeah. So the role at Heritage Toronto was kind of like my first permanent public history role. Prior to that, like you mentioned, Robin, I lived in Ottawa for uh, eight years. I moved there to do my undergrad and ended up falling in love with a boy, falling in love with a, with the city, falling in love with Carleton University, um, stayed there for my master's. And essentially, beginning in about third year university, I was working between uh, 20 and 30 hours a week in um office jobs, really excellent learning opportunities with the federal and municipal public service. So with Ottawa Public Health, um, and then later on with Health Canada, but it also, I had opportunities to work with the National Capital Commission in public art and commemoration, um, and also in their capital experience program, which was kind of my first opportunity in engaging audiences in the history of the capital region. Right. So yeah, I remember you spending time at the NCC as well during our program. Um, I always thought it was so interesting how you were able to make that jump from Health Canada into actually working in heritage and having that that history job. And for a long time, that was the thing that helped me to hold out hope. I worked in um, private sector for like a very non-history company for four years as well before making my jump. And it it showed me that it could be done, which was really nice. I feel like that's I feel like that's a pretty common experience for a lot of people. Um, yeah, and it's great. It's always yeah. really nice to see when people are able to continue the work that they started in their education or their personal interests and like roll that into their career. Because sometimes it can be kind of unattainable or at least seem unattainable at some times. 
Yeah, um, one of my one of my biggest recommendations when I talk to students, when I talk to recent grads, um, Heritage Toronto is beginning an emerging historians program, which is for students and um, and emerging professionals to try and get them work experience. And one of the things that I I tell them is to try out as many different things as possible and to really keep an open mind to the skills that they're going to be developing and that experience and how incredibly transferable those things are. So when I was working at Health Canada, it was in the First Nations Inuit Health Branch doing quality improvement and accreditation. And I was doing communications out to um, First Nations communities across Canada. Really what I was doing was stakeholder engagement um, and community engagement work. And that process of engaging with those outside communities is something that continues on in my day-to-day work at Heritage Toronto today. Yeah, it's amazing when you can when you're able to see how those skills are transferable and be able to to really sell yourself to be able to make that transition. I think it's really, it's key and it's not something that everybody can wrap their heads around or always execute quite as well. So it's it's exciting when that happens and it all comes together. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe you can tell us a bit about your role at your current position as Director of Programming. Sure. So um, Heritage Toronto, just as a bigger picture, um, Heritage Toronto is an arm's length charitable agency of the city. We're a small but mighty team. We're a volunteer-led organization. So what I mean by that is that uh, volunteers outnumber staff by 15 to 1 which is quite a magnitude. So if if the volunteers ever wanted to stage a coup, we would be uh, maybe a little bit screwed. Um, (laughs) But we we basically, um, our mandate is to promote and celebrate and commemorate Toronto's heritage. We do this through uh, three main program streams, our tours program, which runs May to October, 60 tours across the city, led by um, community leaders, individual experts, people who are really passionate about the spaces that they live in. Um, Our plaques program, which is one of the most active, it's actually the most active plaques program in North America. Uh, It produces about 50 plaques each year, again, on a range of subjects, people, places, events. Uh, And then um, also our awards program, which is kind of our flagship fundraising event, uh, where we recognize outstanding achievements in built heritage, public history, community heritage, and historical writing. (laughs) You can uh, hear hear my husband in the background and my daughter. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so my current role, basically, I'm responsible for overseeing, managing, and directing all of the programming uh, components, both on core programs, but then special projects. So I work with a team of three full-time programmers, as well as a suite of um, contract staff, interns, like I mentioned, our Emerging Historians initiative. Um, Last year, we had about 28 emerging historians who were involved in different aspects of the program. And then um, there's close to 100, 120 volunteers uh, who work with us in different areas. In terms of what my typical day looks like, because it's all well and good to say, um, oh, here here are the programs that I'm responsible for, but like, what does running that sort of a program look like? no such thing as a typical day, um, as I'm sure that your listeners are well aware of, and I'm sure that you're well aware of. Uh, 
To give you an example of today, I met with a colleague about our Virtual Museums of Canada project. We talked a lot about our strategy for image research and video research. Um, this project, which is about Toronto's music history, really has an unending uh, stream of possibilities for research. But of course, the project has a really limited time frame and a limited scope and a very limited budget. So um, we were talking about how we wanted to streamline that. I uh, spent some time putting together an outreach strategy for uh, the awards program in terms of how we want to increase nominations and improve the type of nominations that we're getting. Um, and then I also spent a lot of time uh, mired in operational details like project plans and budgets and grant applications. So it kind of, it runs the gamut from those really fun things that we all love doing um, to those not so fun things. Like I love working with volunteers, but uh, we're right now in the process of volunteer recruitment, which means I'm doing a lot of reviewing of resumes. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's yeah. not as, as fun of a part of that. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's a lot of like hope and promise, but also a lot of like... <laughs> I need to keep this organized, you know, like efficient, systematic way. Mm -hmm. And I'm not great at that. <laughs> <laughs> so with your work, you've told us a bit about what your typical days are kind of like and that there are no typical days in what sort of role that you play at Heritage Toronto. One of the exciting things that has come out is the Heritage Toronto report, the State of Heritage report. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the report and how the information for the report was collected. Absolutely. So the State of Heritage Report is a report that Heritage Toronto produces every four years aligning with the municipal election cycle. So uh, after amalgamation in Toronto in 2000, the heritage networks in the city were very aware that heritage needed to be on the, the radar of the new Toronto City Council. And every four years since then, uh, we've produced this report, not as a way of criticizing the outgoing council, but rather as a way of saying to that new council, hey, here are what your priorities should be. Um, in terms of the time frame and the approach for gathering information, it was over a year's worth of work. I started it before I went on that leave, had a baby, came back, and we were still in the editing process, which was kind of nice for me to be able to see both ends of that, um, but pass off a lot of the public consultations to um, two of my amazing colleagues, Claudia and Laura. Um, what Claudia and Laura did was really a sweeping scan of who in the sector are those thought leaders, as well as those voices who are underrepresented. Um, and they went out and through consultations, met with about 58 community organizations. We held a town hall with close to 200 members of the general public. Um, and then we also did what we believe to be the first uh, municipal survey on sort of values in heritage in Toronto. So we were asking questions like, how frequently do you visit a park? How frequently do you um, go into Toronto's ravines? Did you know that there are these new parks that have been constructed? Um, how often do you visit a museum? Do you think a, a City of Toronto Museum is a worthwhile project? If so, how should it be funded, et cetera, et cetera? Um, one of the things that we found coming out of the report is that there actually really is a lack of data at the municipal level on the, in particular, the economic value of heritage. 
that's something that we found also at like even the federal level. We've done some research into um, heritage tourism. That was kind of something that as a company we've been really interested in. And it's there's just not a lot there right now. So it's um, it's challenging to collect that data and to really know where to start when it's such a vast topic and it really does impact so many different spheres, but no one is really thinking about those impacts and how, how to measure it. Yeah, and I don't think it's something that the, the heritage sector in Canada really has had to do in the past, um, just because of the history of the way heritage is funded in Canada, particularly compared to in the United States. Um, but yeah, like how, how do you evaluate, for example, you know, Handmaid's Tale is shooting in Toronto right now. One of the reasons that it has chosen its locations is because of the historic nature of some of the properties it's shooting at both in Toronto and in Hamilton. Um, you know, how do you evaluate and put a dollar figure on the impact of that, for example? Yeah. Or, you know, another thing that the report really looks at is the relationship between heritage and sustainability. Um, and right now, I think it's something like 25 percent. This is a, a B.C. statistic, but 25 percent of municipal landfill waste is um, tied to development and new construction, which is incredible and, and should be giving us pause as we're facing climate change to say, OK, not only is it smart economically to um, adapt and reuse heritage buildings. And not only is it something that makes us feel good, but it's actually something that's gonna like help keep the planet alive. Yeah, and that's something that I, I was really interested in in the report because oftentimes whenever there's talk of, you know, having to renovate a building for her that, that is being protected for heritage purposes, there's a lot of gripes in the public about how, oh, it's gonna cost so much more money. But the case study that was presented actually showed that there's a lot of money to be saved in doing that. In not necessarily in every case, but in a lot of cases, it seems like it's not it's not going to cost extra. It's actually going to save money in the long run to use the existing structure and to find ways of working within it. Yeah, and not only is it going to save money in the long term, the other thing to bear in mind is that when a company spends money on materials that are coming from international sources, be they China, be it somewhere in Africa, be it somewhere in Europe, it doesn't really matter where, but at the end of the day, they're paying multinational corporations for a good, as opposed to conservation work and crafts work where they are paying local workers to do work on the building. And at the end of the day, it's a higher percentage of the project dollars that are going into people's pockets. And ultimately that has a positive impact for local economic development. Is it staying within the system, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I yeah. think that's really interesting because that's another example of how heritage is beneficial. Because earlier we were talking about kind of the financial aspects of it, how it's financially mm -hmm. beneficial to a community or society. But we're also now talking about natural heritage, which um, in reading the report, the different kinds of heritage were split up in between natural, cultural, built and archaeological. And I know for myself, when I was reading it, I often forget to include natural when I'm thinking of different kinds of heritage. And I think, as you pointed out, with issues with climate change moving forward, that natural aspect of heritage is only going to become more and more important. And in somewhere like Toronto, from your perspective, um, being a huge city, like, do you find 
that natural heritage is kind of held at the same regard or with the same sort of reverence as the other kinds of heritage? Yes and no. Um, it depends a bit on what part of the city you're in. The closer you are to one of the three significant rivers in the city, the Humber, the Don, or the Rouge, or the closer you are to the waterfront, I think the more aware you are of it, as well as the closer you are to street level. So my sense is, and this is as much anecdotal as as anything else, because we didn't get into this with our survey, um, but those residents of the city who are living on, say, the 21st floor of an apartment building, they're maybe a, literally more removed, geographically more removed from those natural heritage spaces. But in terms of their overall health and well-being, it's actually really important important to those people. Um, if you look at, you know, the role that parks play in high-rise communities and high-rise neighborhoods, um, it's actually, natural heritage is extraordinarily important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, you, you touched on um, well-being right there as well. And something that I found actually the most striking in the report was the, the heritage for your health little section that mm -hmm. talked about um, Ontario physicians being able to prescribe a visit to the Royal Ontario Museum. That's mm -hmm. incredible. Absolutely. I, yeah, I never would have considered that. And, and the fact that the ROM has now offered uh, or will offer 5,000 free passes is incredible to me. That's mm. a, There is so, such an amazing aspect that Heritage can speak to people and, and really meet people where they're at and provide and, and help with that state of well-being. So I think it's wonderful to see that physicians are getting on board with that. Yeah, and it really is that piece around, you know, social cohesion as well. And I think, you know, the nature of late stage capitalism and the precarity of work, particularly in um, cities like Toronto and Ottawa and elsewhere, um, is that we really are increasingly aware and concerned of the need for self-care. And if you look at, you know, on the corporate side, companies like uh, Shopify and some of the other tech startups where it's like, oh, we have healthy snacks in the kitchen or we provide you with a gym membership or this, that and the other. Like, it's really great that those um, businesses are taking an initiative. But I think also there's this recognition within the public realm that these pieces of infrastructure, things like heritage buildings, but also the natural heritage of our parks and waterways, um, that those are really fundamentally important to to society's well-being. And do you think that's more related to the idea of intangible heritage or tangible heritage? Do you think that value kind of comes from the experience of a shared, maybe invisible to the eye sort of um, cultural or heritage experience? That's a really good question. I think that oftentimes tangible heritage, those spaces and places and buildings become vessels for intangible heritage. And at the end of the day, it's the intangible heritage that's important. But we need those spaces for people to convene, right? Um, so there's been a lot written about the third space, which is this idea that like you have home, you have work, you need a space in your community. And what is happening to those spaces? You know, historically, it was things like um, places of worship, 
and community centers, libraries, the pub, you know, your local pub, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I remember Michael McClellan from ERA Architects lamenting when the Brunswick House, which was a, a really old pub in Toronto, uh, was turned into, it was a pub, it was a music venue, converted into a Rexall. And he's like, nobody is going to go and gather in a pharmacy, right? That's not... <laughs> You, if you think about this, the quote-unquote public spaces or those quasi-public spaces where you get together with friends and chat, what are those spaces in 21st century Canada, urban Canada? They're the mm -hmm. shopping malls. Yeah, and even the shopping malls are starting to die off as well, right? Which is, it's unfortunate. So it, it is a, an issue that I think many cities and, and different regions of Canada are having to face. I know in Ottawa... Uh, there was an old church in Westboro that was converted, was bought up by the Blues Fest, um, by the Blues Fest organization, and they've turned it into, you know, kind of like a music hall where you can go, you can have lessons there, but then they also have um, actual presentations and you can go for concerts. And so they were able to really use that sanctuary space, which had great acoustics in it, and use it for something else. And it still is kind of that center where people can gather and I really appreciate places being able to have those ideas for places of worship or, or other older heritage buildings and finding new uses for them that are still finding ways to bring people together in those spaces, yeah. even though it might not be the original intent. Exactly. And that's that's absolutely what adaptive reuse is about, right, is that a building a building can only last and thrive if it has a purpose for the contemporary society. And with that idea of a contemporary society or spaces changing or meaning changing, in the report, it talks about this push towards more accessible sort of digital platforms. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about the third space as kind of a very abstract concept, as kind of like a digital realm, um, can you give us some examples of some of these new digital tools or digital initiatives happening in Toronto? I know you mentioned the online museum. Yeah, the yeah. Virtual Museum. Virtual Museums of Canada project. Yeah. Um, could you so, give us a little bit more information about those? Absolutely. Yeah. So among the ones um, that I think have been referenced in in the report that folks can access today and maybe can be included in the show notes are ones like uh, Driftscape, which is a really tremendous app that aggregates a whole bunch of cultural and heritage interpretation material. So you can find all of Heritage Toronto's plaques on there. You can find information from Spacing Magazine and some of its books. You can find tours that the um, Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives developed, that First Story Toronto developed about the city's Indigenous history. So it's kind of a really excellent one-stop shop. It's called Driftscape. Um, in terms of ones that Heritage Toronto is working on, in April, we're launching a new website and very shortly thereafter, probably May, uh, we'll be launching our first ever digital tour, which is a tour of the Dundas and Carlisle industrial neighborhood. Um, it's going to include interviews with people who worked in that neighborhood, uh, video footage, archival material, artifacts, etc. So it's kind of this nice cross between an online exhibition and a tour and it's something that you can experience uh on your mobile phone on site but that you can also kind of look at on your computer at home and get this really good sense of the place that was here the stories that were here and the place that 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 neighborhood continues to be um 
And then the Sounds Like Toronto project that we're working on is a quarter million dollar Virtual Museums of Canada uh, funded online exhibition. Its goal is to um, engage Canadians across the country, but in particular, a younger audience with um, Toronto's music history over the last 60 years and how the music scenes in Toronto have contributed to Canadian mu music culture today. So we want for the audience to be able to draw a line from, say, Jeremy Dutcher, who is an incredibly um, just rock, like rock star in the literal sense, but also in that just like he's so amazingly talented. Um, he's a classically trained opera singer who uh, was working with the wax uh, cylinders that his indigenous um, ancestors had recorded on. He went to the Canadian Museum of History, um, studied those, recorded his album based on his learnings in that. Um, and he's now based out of Toronto. And we want the exhibit um, audience to draw a line sort of from him back to say Buffy St. Marie or Robbie Robertson and the band in the 1960s in Toronto. Or like similarly, we want people to understand the connection between say someone like Mishi Me, who, you know, a lot of us millennials grew up with, um, and how her work in the early hip hop scene of Toronto contributed to the success of like Drake or The Weeknd. Um, so it's about making those tangible connections between past, present and future. And um, again, thinking about that question of the third place, we're also going to be telling the stories of about 20 different venues in the city where music has has taken place. And some of those are the really like classic spaces um, like the Friars Tavern or the Cock Door on Young Street and kind of the rock music scene of the 1960s and 70s, but also challenging kind of what music venues uh, mean. So we're featuring much music, for example, and talking about um, the role of music videos in Toronto's music history and, and the the VJ. Um, yeah, and, and just getting people to engage with that idea that like music is important and it also has to take place in spaces outside of streaming online. Awesome. That's such an exciting topic to have uh, chosen too, because music is something that we all interact with it's so vital to so many people's lives and also it inherently has history within it because people have you know their favorite decade they've watched their bands grow and change over time and even if they're not necessarily realizing it consciously we all kind of have these histories that we've gathered of our favorite artists and bands and time frames and eras and so it's really neat because that seems like such an accessible area to be able to call that even more to people's minds and make them conscious of these connections that they're making on their own without even realizing it. Absolutely. And it's such, it's, it is such a fun avenue to explore. And there's so many amazing stories that we can tell through it. So um, the storylines that we're looking at for the exhibition really they're going to be about pushing boundaries, about creating a sense of belonging, about starting out in Toronto. And so many of these stories are of um, artists who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of colour. Um, this is an exhibition that has gender parity in terms of the representation. Um, and it's super, super exciting for Heritage Toronto because we are a volunteer-driven uh, organisation oftentimes, and because, for example, our plaques program is all public application based, um, 
staff have a degree of curatorial control, but this is the first really, really big exhibition where staff have been able to sit down and say, okay, what matters here? This is the theme, this is the subject matter. I'm working with a really amazing interpretive planning specialist. Um, and she and I have been going back and forth a lot and saying like, how do we make this relevant and inclusive to all Canadians? Part of the title of the report that you guys have put out is changing the narrative kind of as a subtitle itself. So do you feel like this sort of attitude with this project that you've just described is going to be indicative of projects to kind of come in Toronto or? Um... Yeah, I, I really hope that it is. I think one of the biggest challenges whenever you say you want to change something is that it's so easy to just keep calm and carry on, right? And to follow the status quo. Um, and it's a lot harder to kind of swim against the current, if you will. Um, so certainly going forward and even in other areas of our programming, like our tours program, we're commissioning uh, three new scripts this year, one of Eglinton West, Little Jamaica, one of uh, the Golden Mile, which was a huge industrial zone. And then we're also doing a tour uh, called Lady Action that's going to be about women trailblazers in Toronto. So we definitely um, are making efforts and we're seeing, I think, slowly but surely the results of that where we're reaching new audiences um and there's definitely buy-in from the general public and people are kind of like oh this is what heritage toronto is about cool i'm on board that's awesome um i i love what i do at no history but honestly listening to everything that you've talked about <laughs> has just made me be like no i want to work on all these other projects <laughs> you do two full-time jobs yeah. and have a baby i'm totally. sure that's fine <laughs> No, the, the feeling is totally mutual, though. And I don't know how many meetings that I've gone into where somebody's like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm working on now. And it's like, really, can I help you? And that, that is just like the most challenging aspect of my job is saying no to people. And it's it's not because I don't want to be involved in everything, but because there's only so many hours in the day. Right. And and even um with a project like Sounds Like Toronto, meeting with Emily, our uh, interpretive planning specialist today, and she's like, can we add five more artists? Because I want this to be even more inclusive. And I was like, you, you really want to increase the workload by 15%? You know that <laughs> our digital partner has already, like, you know this affects other people, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so like that's, that is the most challenging aspect of it. It's a hugely privileged position that I get to be in to do what I do on a daily basis and come home with a paycheck. Um, but yeah, do I lie awake at night trying to figure out how I can, you know, fit that extra tour that a group has asked me to do into my schedule? Yes. <laughs> So you've already touched on it a little bit just now, but um, more specifically, maybe, can you tell us how your career has changed your outlook on history? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, a really easy question. <laughs> oh. My outlook on history from when? Like from the time that I graduated? Oh, that's that seems like, I mean, I don't, it, it's been a long time since I graduated. I don't think we need to go that far back. But <laughs> <laughs> just in general, like, um, you know, just even the position and, and working on this heritage, the state of heritage report, um, seeing how the different projects that you've been able to work on and the different um, things you've been able to say yes to, but also the things you've had to say no to, how that changes um, yeah, your outlook on, on heritage, on the 
continuation of heritage and its uh, preservation and conservation in Toronto, but also just, you know, more generally, is it still something that, it seems like it's still something that you're very passionate about, regardless of the fact that it's your job. Um, but yeah, just some of those kinds of questions or ideas. Yeah. I really, I really like doing interviews like this because it's a great opportunity to be reflexive. And so when I'm having days where I'm like, oh my God, if I have to like calculate formulas one more time for this budget, I'm, I'm just like, I'm walking out of here kind of thing. I will come back <laughs> to this interview and listen to myself. Um, I think how my career has changed my outlook on history is twofold. One, it's really broadened my understanding of both what history is and why it matters mm. and has definitely led me to be more critical of our day-to-day -day experiences uh, with history in the general public and whose stories are included, whose stories are excluded and why. Secondly, and this is almost seems like it's contrary to that first change is that it sort of required me to be more focused and specific about what is important because like I said you can't be everywhere you can't chase every story idea you have to sort of decide for yourself what are those values that you really hold dear whose stories are you prioritizing? What approaches are you prioritizing? What are the, how do you measure success, right? And I think one of the big things that's, that's changed and is reflected in both of these is I had a very specific idea of what success looked like um, seven or eight years ago, and it looks very different now. And I think success now for me in my sector um, and in my job is, more holistic than just, hey, we're going to do this project and a lot of people are going to pay attention. It's like, what is actually that impact um, has changed and, and looking for sort of more tangible and concrete, but also more like specific impacts mm. rather than just the number of visitors. So the idea of bolstering that intangible and tangible heritage, maybe not with a huge bang, like a gigantic exhibition or a huge review, but just through kind of laying bricks every day in making Toronto a better place to live? Yeah, yeah. And that the, the, the journey in some ways can be as impactful as the, as the outcome or the destination. That um, working with emerging historians or students or interns and giving them that learning experience is every bit as important as, you know, getting the research right. Mm -hmm. Those things going in the wrong direction have dramatically different consequences, obviously. Um, but at the end of the day, five years from now, that student is going to have a really strong memory of that experience if it's a positive one. Whereas the audience might not care whether or not a comma was included in the opening sentence. Very true. Yeah. And those are all, um, I mean, it, it's easier to to be able to place a value and understand the value on all of those issues once you're actually working in the field. But um, I think that's part of the beauty of the public history program, but also in understanding and looking into public history in general is that it is kind of not just, I'm gonna write this really great book and it's gonna change everybody's understanding of who this historical figure was. It's, you know, how how am I going to be involved in people's lives and helping them to understand 
history and how it touches them and how it impacts them and how they can participate within it. Mm-hmm. So um, we've touched on quite a few really exciting projects that have either recently happened um, for Heritage Toronto or that you're currently working on. Is there anything else that you wanted to include? I would like to encourage all of your listeners, as well as both of you, to think about um, a heritage project in or about Toronto that maybe has inspired you in the last year and consider nominating it for a Heritage Toronto Award. Um, Yeah. It's like a fun challenge to leave you guys with. Uh, I'll make sure that you get a link to the nomination uh, forms when they go live. But it is a public nomination process. If uh, if you yourself are the lead on the project, you can absolutely self-nominate. We do not discriminate in that respect. Um, and it's the the event itself, which is October 28th at the Carlu. It's really um, a little bit like the Junos, but for heritage. So it's just a really fun. Um, very happy, enjoyable networking evening. And it's a great chance to see uh, what else is happening within the heritage sector. But um, but yeah, the awards can only happen if we have great projects nominated. And I'm sure that that you and your listeners can think of, of some projects that are worthy for consideration. Yeah, absolutely. We'd be happy to include um, the information for how to do that in, in our show notes, as well as on, on Instagram. And um, yeah, we'll We'll plug that away. Yeah, we'll rise to the challenge. <laughs> and if you're in Toronto this summer, uh, Heritage Toronto also has 60 tours that it's offering on Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Um, and again, information is at heritagetoronto.org. Perfect. Awesome. Well, I think this has been such a valuable conversation, not just for understanding more of what your work looks like, but also for understanding how um, how history and heritage really touch everyone's lives within Toronto and um, all the ways that they can engage within it, the different aspects that it can impact. I mean, we talked about social cohesion and um, economic sustainability, you know, climate change in general, but really <laughs> everything. Heritage it's run in the gamut. No, yeah, and, that, and that was, that's the executive summary of the Heritage Report starts out with like, heritage is for everyone. It should be accessible to everyone. And the reason that we chose those three lenses to look at heritage through, uh, heritage um, create social cohesion, heritage contributes positively to economic development, and heritage is sustainable is because that those are three fundamental values that governments, not just in Toronto, not just in Canada, but like around the world are grappling with. And heritage can be a, a powerful tool for positive movement on those issues. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been really exciting to be able to hear about all of those initiatives and um, to have a better understanding of, you know, those impacts and, and what they look like um, in tangible, but also in intangible ways, such mm-hmm. as heritage itself. Um, so hopefully our listeners will be able to um, to think differently about different buildings or natural heritage, all the different aspects that we've talked about today um, when they next encounter it in their own lives. Absolutely. Well, it was really, really fun talking with you both. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Robin Mullins and Emily Cuggy. This week's audio editor was Jessica DiLorenzio. For more information about today's topic, visit us at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at nohistory.ca or find us on social media at Notice History. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 